0: Docs, uh, y'all are loud this morning. You can take your seats for me. You guys are loud. I like it. I like it. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you, SALT students. Love that you're back. I love it. I love it. Um, we are continuing this series we, we are in called Explicit Gospel trying to get clear, trying to understand what this good news is that we, we talk about, we preach, we, we share with each other. We want to be clear with you because clarity is kindness. We want to be clear about what we believe and what we think. We're not trying to, to trick anyone or, or pull the wool over your eyes and make you think, oh, this is a really cool church, and all of a sudden you believe in what? Like, no, we want to be clear together what this means. But we talk through God, who God is. He is this holy God, and in his holiness and his love, he's revealed himself to us. He showed us what he's like and, and made a way for us to be in relationship with him. We've talked about man, mankind, and the reign of death. How we've experienced death and, and how we're, we die because of sin in our lives. Sin that we, and we've been born into and that we've committed together. And now we're talking about Christ. We didn't talk about Jesus the whole time, but we're, we're, we're getting to, to Jesus and talking about Jesus as the hero of the story. One of the things I I get to do is I get to meet a lot of new people coming into Doxa and and talking about getting connected and that kind of thing. And there's one of the things I I enjoy doing that might feel like this weird sort of um, trap, right? Like you're you're sitting with this ministry person, whatever, and and I ask this question, and I don't mean it to be sneaky or a trap, but I say like, "Hey, what is the gospel?" Right, And you're like, oh great, pop quiz, Like, I left class how many years ago and now i got to do this. I don't mean it like that. I, I genuinely want to know and understand what you think of when you hear this word gospel, what this news is. Because this news is foundational and fundamental to what we believe is, is just reality. This news shapes everything about it. So, so I sit down and I ask you, what is the gospel? Again, not to trick you or to trap you, but to try to understand where you're at and what you think. And I've heard a, a lot of different answers, Right? I've heard some people who've been around the church for a while who actually stumble because they've never been asked that question before. And maybe if you had to answer it right now, you'd be like, um, shoot, like I've heard of that, but I, I don't know what that is. Sometimes people say, man, that's just so big. That's just such a big idea, I don't, I don't even know how to deal with that. Well, we want you to be able to answer and understand what that is because, because the word gospel it means good news. It is news, it's an announcement, it's a proclamation that, that you... We actually want you to be able to know and understand. But there's, there's one answer, there's one response I've heard that, that sounds right at first, and it's mostly right, but it's actually incomplete. And I think a right answer that's not all the way right, not all the way complete, can be, can be almost as dangerous as a wrong answer. A, a right answer, but, but missing it a little bit by a few degrees can set the course and trajectory of your life off in a direction where you actually might miss out on what God has for you. You could have an answer to this question, what is the gospel that gets you through most contexts, but is actually not enough to, to propel and to motivate joy in your life. You might make it to heaven, but be limping the whole way there because you've missed out a piece of this goodness, the good news. You're not convinced yet. I get it. That's fair. Um, here's, here's the answer I've heard that's like most of the way there, but not quite all the way there. Christ died for my sins. Beautiful, good, true, yes. But what's missing? Hey, come on. Terry, you're my man. Thursday night, you have my back. You got me now. The, the resurrection, right? You've got Good Friday, but you don't have Sunday. You're missing the resurrection. And you're like, okay, pop quiz, cool, whatever. I knew that one, whatever, okay. But but listen to me. If you miss the resurrection, you're missing something fundamental to your joy and motivation and drive in your Christian life. And again, you're like, yeah, yeah, but I knew the right answer, Nate. What are you doing here? But what comes to mind when you think of Jesus' finished work, what's top of mind for you, what, what comes out when you are squeezed and pressed, that is actually what is shaping and motivating your life. It's not enough to answer some, again, theological pop quizzes or, or whatever, but, but the things that come out of you when you are stretched and pressed and squeezed by this life, or what comes out when you're trying to talk to and share with people you love, those things are fundamental shaping forces in your life. Again, you might not be convinced yet, that's okay, but what if? your experience of God this side of eternity is being shaped by an incomplete view of the gospel? What if your experience even emotionally in your Christian life is being stunted because of an incomplete view of the gospel? What if your drive towards discipline and holiness and pursuing God is actually being short-circuited by an incomplete view of the gospel? Right, just not all the way there. Right, just not not complete in those moments where you really need hope and to grasp on. The the question we're considering today is, what happens if we miss the resurrection? And again, maybe not miss the resurrection on on a pop quiz, but miss the resurrection as a reality for your everyday life. You guys ready? Someone say, yep. 1 Corinthians 15, you got a Bible or an app, turn there. Table of contents is your best friend. Um, I would love for you to, to have it open. We're going to be just walking through a passage there. I want you looking at it. First Corinthians 15 will be in the first 11 verses. While you turn there, here's a little background. There's a guy named Paul. He was a church planter. He'd been sent out by Jesus to go share this good news and, and help churches start where people could, could share the gospel in their lives, the glory of God and the good of the places they were in. And one of those places was the city called Corinth. It was kind of a, a sailor's town. It was a little buck wild. It was kind of crazy. And, and this letter to this church reflects all that stuff going on. They had wild theology and wild living and all this stuff happening. And one of the things they were missing was there were people in their church who were basically saying the resurrection either wasn't going to happen or it's this kind of vague spiritual thing. It, it really isn't that big of a deal. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You don't know what's on the other side, so, so just live it up now. People were trying to, to build a theology that said the resurrection of Jesus, again, either didn't happen or didn't matter. you got to live life for today. Now, I haven't heard people try to tell me that theology lately, but I, I, I do know that we exist and live in a culture where that is just normal. Why think about death? It's so unpleasant. Why think about what's coming on the other side when you've got bills to pay and mouths to feed? You've got things going on right now, right? Why, why worry about that stuff when it is painful and traumatic, when, when today's got enough going on? Again, you aren't in Corinth in the first century, but you live in a world that is trying to de-emphasize the resurrection and trying to push your mind off of eternal things. So we might not be exactly like them, but I think we might struggle with the same thing. So Paul is writing this letter, and especially chapter 15, to try to ground them in the reality of the resurrection. So we're gonna we're gonna walk through these verses and understand what Paul is saying is fundamental and key to the gospel, and then see what implications he has for us. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse one. This question: What difference does a resurrection make? Verse one: Paul writes, "Now I would remind you, brothers or brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received." In which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Look at that that word in verse one. I, I would remind you. He's telling them again. This isn't just the first time they've heard it, but he's telling them again and again. You need to hear this and understand this over and over. This is a, a repetition in his ministry. No matter what letter you're in, he's telling them over and over the things he's told them before. That's why we talk about the gospel so much. It's actually core to us understanding what it means to be Christians and a church and people in this world. We need to be reminded of these things. Again, he says, I would remind you, brothers or brothers and sisters, these are, these are people who are church people. They're, they've been around it for a while. This isn't just news for somebody who's, who's outside of the family or people who it's kind of the first steps. He's telling them over and over. And look at that, he says, You received this, you stand in it now, and you're being saved if you hold fast. If you don't move on, if you don't try to add to it or, or move away from the finished work of Jesus. But he has three kind of tenses in there. He says, received past tense. You heard this at some point, and there was a moment of decision. You went from death to life. You said, I'm with Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. I'm in now. That happened in the past, but he says, in which you stand. That wasn't kind of like the first stepping stone, and then you move on to deeper things or or whatever you're still standing in that right now present tense. And he says, by which you are being saved, off continually into the future. Salvation isn't just a a one-time thing in the past or, or a sometime thing in the future. It's an ongoing experience we have, life with God, eternal life, now into forever. There will be a moment where we step into eternity and see him face to face, but that salvation, again, is not something you wait for at some point, something you get to experience and walk in with God now but he says, unless you believed in vain. If this resurrection didn't happen or it's not important, it's not significant, then none of this matters. None of this makes sense. If we're just here kind of like doing some weird sort of karaoke on a Sunday morning, like there are other places you should be, right? But if the resurrection is real, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how you see yourself and your neighbors and our city and eternity. It changes everything. If you've been in Foundations, we, we've used these two verses to kind of unpack a concept. Sometimes, maybe in, in a church culture or ministry you've been around, we treat the gospel like the ABCs. Someone say ABC. Thank you. When was the last time you had to learn your ABCs? For most of us, the ABCs happened a long, long time ago. Or maybe if you're like our friends in Japan, you were like having to go back to that phase where you're learning the fundamentals again. But at some point, you, have to, you don't keep singing the ABCs to yourself, right? If you're like 35 and an accountant, I hope you're not singing like ABC, like how do I get through this, right? That doesn't, that doesn't help you out much. You want to move past it, and sometimes in church life, we can treat the gospel like the ABCs. Yeah, yeah, you need that when you're kind of getting into church stuff. You need that at the beginning, but then you got to move on to deeper stuff, don't you? Right, you need discipleship. You need to know all of these things. You need to understand superlapsarianism and eschatology and the new perspective on Paul. you got to fill your head with all these deep things. The gospel, that's for, that's for kind of new people, right? Paul is saying something radically different than this. He's saying the gospel is not just the ABCs that you somehow move on from. It is the A to Z of the Christian life received in a moment and experienced in the fullness when you die. But every moment in between, everything that we do is built on the foundation of this good news. There is no part of your Christian life or your theology or your practice that does not stand on this good news. We don't move on from it. We don't shift off of it. You don't graduate from the gospel. You build on that firm foundation forever into eternity. Again, the gospel is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the language we become fluent in as we try to talk with each other about what Jesus did and with our neighbors. He's saying, again, you received in the past. You stand in it now and off into the future. We will be reveling in this good news forever. So what is this good news? What is fundamental and core to understanding this? Again, if you were sitting with somebody, and it's not a weird pop quiz, but if someone asks you what is the gospel, to Paul's mind, what is that? What are the essential elements? He's going to unpack it starting in verse 3. Look at that. For he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Pause right there. He says, I'm delivering it to you that I received it. He didn't make this up. He didn't discover this. He didn't go on like a meditation retreat and come out with this stuff. He actually was, was told this news. That's, that's the thing about news. You get told it, you get passed on this information from people that witnessed it and experienced it. This good news, again, is not something that we invented. It's not something we discovered for ourselves. It's it's news that's been passed on through scripture and, and with people's lives as a testimony for the last two thousand years. And he says it's of first importance. You might be skeptical this morning. Like you might not be a Christian and I love that you're here. You're in the right place. I'm so glad you're here. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that you might be confused about or want to debate or whatever totally. That's okay. But listen, this is of first importance. We can talk about kind of end times or the beginning or the the whatever, but this is what we got to come back to. This is of first importance. If you want to debate or disagree or whatever, let's look at the fact that we believe this guy died and rose from the dead. That's the crux of the whole thing. It's of first importance. Here's how he describes it. Keep going to verse three. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. So Jesus, born in flesh, God in flesh, died for sin. We saw last week the the reign of sin and death in our lives. You can't work your way to be good enough for a holy God. Sin is anything that misses God's character and nature. It misses the mark of who he is. It's not just a couple rules or a couple laws or whatever, but everything that God commands overflows from who God is. And so if you miss that, if you miss God, missing God forever is separation from a holy God in hell. It's not just like a punishment for a couple bad things. It's missing God and walking away from him for all time. That sin, we needed a sacrifice. We needed to be saved from that because we can't save ourselves. And that might like grate against you a little bit because you've been reading those self-help books and you've been, you've been trying to improve your life, you've been trying to get better, but you hit a certain wall where you realize, I can't root this out of my heart. I can manage my behavior, but I can't fix myself. And I've never met a person who has been to therapy or Christian counselors or whatever for enough years to make themselves perfect. It doesn't work. We need a savior Christ died for our sins. We need a Savior to intervene and interject in that fundamental problem. Anything else, any growth or progress can come from there, but we need a Savior from our sin. And it says, in accordance with the Scriptures. This wasn't an interruption of God's plan. This was the plan, right? Through the whole Bible one of the things I love about reading the Old Testament is we see this kind of mosaic of pieces of, of stories and pictures and prophecies that, that when we see Christ, we look back and we see how all the pieces fit in place. We're going to see that repeated according to the scriptures. Now again, maybe reading the Old Testament has just been like tough or boring or frustrating for you, but when you start to see how it's all pointing to Jesus, you start to get little windows of joy into what God was doing, the story he was writing the whole way through. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, that, that's the first piece, but he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look at verse four. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's that repeated phrase. Now he emphasizes that he was buried and he was raised because this was a literal, physical death and resurrection. This wasn't like a spiritual idea or, or kind of a metaphorical concept. This wasn't a, a philosophical archetype or something like that. This actually happened. The Romans killed him and they were experts in killing people. Jesus died on the cross and was buried in an actual tomb, but then the tomb was empty. He rose to life. His body was resurrected. He even did things like eat fish with people and stuff like that to prove that it wasn't just kind of a ghost or a spiritual image. He actually physically was raised to life, and again for Paul, this is kind of like one idea, right? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised, all according to scripture, but he doesn't stop there this isn't, again, just an idea that you're supposed to take only on faith, but there are witnesses and there is support to this beautiful truth that we trust by faith in Scripture. Keep looking. He's actually going to start quoting for us and telling us about all the different people that encountered this physical, real resurrection. Look at verse 5. And then, uh, uh, that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After he was raised, he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Dude had a bunch of nicknames, right? Cephas is Peter. And the twelve, Jesus' homeboys, the guys that traveled with him the first three, the three years of his ministry. They ate with him, they talked with him, they walked on the road with him, they knew what he looked like. So when the resurrected Jesus came, they were the ones that recognized him, they knew, no, that is actually him. It's not a twin, it's not an imposter, it's not whatever, like, that's actually Jesus, that's our friend, Jesus. And Peter had denied Jesus These twelve had abandoned him on the night he was betrayed. These these weren't like people that were all bought in from the beginning, but they they actually abandoned him and walked away. And when Jesus rose, he collected them together and showed himself to them, saying, I beat death. Even when you abandoned me, I didn't abandon you. I've come back. But now again, if you're skeptical, it's like, yeah, of course those guys would say it, right? They were team Jesus already. Like, of course those guys would say he came back. They had the most to gain from this thing. But there are way more people involved than this. It wasn't just like a secret resurrection that a couple of people witnessed. There's so many more people that testified to this fact. Keep, Keep looking here. Verse six, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That is a mob of people. That's more people than in this room right now. 500 people that Jesus appeared to. And this letter was written 20 to 25 years after the resurrection happened. So Paul is basically saying, hey, you could go check, you could go meet those people, you could talk to them about what happened, you could gather up the witnesses and see. Some of them have died because it's been a minute, right? But, but man, more than 500 people experienced the risen Christ. This wasn't secret, this wasn't private, this wasn't some mystical experience that some people had. No, Jesus appeared in bodily form to more than 500 people. This is history. We've got witnesses, we've got the receipts, like go meet those people and talk to them if you're still skeptical. If you doubt the resurrection, go meet people that, that met the resurrected Savior. But there's more. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph's son, one of Jesus' um, siblings when he was growing up. James is a really interesting name to point out because James was not on team Jesus' Savior growing up, Right? There there are moments in Jesus' ministry where his family are actually like, hey, we can't handle the pressure, we don't like the press, like, hey, Jesus is probably just crazy, guys. Let's just get him out of there. He's probably crazy. Let's just take him back home, put him in a padded room, it'll be fine. Like, James did not believe Jesus was a Savior until something dramatic happened in his life, until something changed the course of, of his entire life. He met the risen Jesus. Again, James was not somebody who was already on Team Jesus or who had a lot to gain and profit from this. He had to to admit that he was wrong. He had to have a change of mind and a change of heart to go from that to when he writes a letter later to a church, he says, Jesus is Lord. He saw the risen Christ. He went from a doubter to a leader in the church, being persecuted, suffering alongside Christians for this truth that no, Jesus actually did rise from the dead. He really is who he said he was. Jesus appeared to James and the apostles. He, apostles are sent ones. He had sent out people on different mission trips, things like that. He gathers these people again and says, hey, I'm back. Like, touch touch my scarred hands, see my body. I'm going to eat food with you guys. I'm back. I'm resurrected. And then, then Paul includes himself in here. He says, last of all, again, he appeared to me. Paul was not team Jesus. Paul was trying to stop the spread of the church. Paul was saying, Hey, it is heresy and blasphemy to say Jesus is the Savior. It is blasphemy to say He rose from the dead for your sins. You've got to stop doing this. And he was persecuting Christians until he met Jesus, until he met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, until he had this blinding experience of the risen Christ come to him and say, No, 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 I I am alive, I am the Savior. I am the one that you've been waiting and hoping for. He had a complete reorientation of his entire life. His belief finally came together where he saw the promises and the picture, the mystery from the entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Whether it's James the doubter or Paul the persecutor, both encounter the risen Christ and they're changed. Now again, maybe this morning you, you have doubts. That's okay, you're in a good place. But meeting the resurrected Savior changes everything. Maybe you don't want to be a Christian. You've met enough Christians that you're like, no, thank you, <laughs> right? I'm out. I remember a point in my life where the, the biggest thing holding me back from becoming a Christian was the fact that I did not like Christians. I didn't want to be one of those guys. But but would you just for a second kind of set aside your skepticism or your frustration with people and look at the risen Savior? If he really did rise from the dead, like all of these people are testifying, like the entire Old Testament is pointing to, if that really happened, then then swallow your pride for a minute and maybe get counted with the rest of us. It changes everything if Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's going to give just a little bit more of his story here. Verse 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He's not like bragging here. He's basically saying like, guys, up to this point, I've planted more churches. I've suffered more persecutions. I've traveled more miles than anyone else for this news that I used to push against. But it's not about my reputation or resume. It is the grace of God motivating and pressing me forward because I've met the risen Savior. That changed everything. Again, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This isn't something you discover for yourself. You hear this news declared to you and you choose to accept it. I'm not going to trust him, the resurrected one, as Savior and Lord. Let me just summarize for us what, what the things are, the, the core elements of this gospel, so that if you were sitting with some, you know, nerd like me and they ask you a theological pop quiz, what is the gospel? Here's what Paul says the answer is. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised. This is all according to Scripture. Christ died for our sins. Again, sin is an offense against a holy God. It is not something you work off or pay back or whatever. It's not just a mistake. It actually separates you from the holy God now into forever. But a Savior showed up to die for you as the perfect and final sacrifice. And he didn't just die, he was buried and he was raised. A real physical bodily resurrection that hundreds of people saw. Hundreds of people encountered him on the other side. And all of this was according to God's plan. All of this is putting the pieces together of this beautiful mosaic of the Old Testament. Throughout real history, God promised and prophesied that he would do this. And when Jesus came, he proved it. So what do you do with this? hopefully many of you are like, yep, duh, okay, cool, I'm in already, like, what do you do with this good news, and how does this good news begin to reshape and drive your life with God? How does this help you in those moments when you are oppressed and pressured, when you're struggling and suffering? How does this good news shape everything about what you do, not just for today, but into eternity? Paul is going to give us part of that answer at the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verse 58. He spent the whole chapter talking about the resurrection what it means. Let me read this verse for you. Therefore, because of all of this, because of this resurrection hope, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think there are three implications that we can see from this. First off, you are fully forgiven because of the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, you are fully forgiven. Listen to me, God could have done it this way where he he sent Jesus and and Jesus said, hey, I'm going to die for your sins and then I'm just going to go straight up to heaven. I'm not going to be raised, I'm just going to deal with death and and then I'll go up to heaven and and call it good. He could have done it that way if he wanted to. I, I don't know about you, but this is what would have happened to me. If he had done it that way, I would be looking back on the cross in that event and there would always be a little bit of doubt there would always be just a little bit of me that would go, man, was it enough, right? Did he die for, for some people and, and then kind of run out of grace or mercy at some point, right? Did he really deal with it or is there something I've got to work back or, or pay off or whatever? Like, is that cup fully full of grace and mercy? Or is there a little bit left that I got to deal with or it's going to come back to haunt me in the end? But that's not what happened, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, he, he beat death, and on the other side he was raised to life to prove that you can be fully and completely forgiven. There is nothing you have to pay God back for. There is nothing left that, that you need to try to work off or, or pay off. You are fully forgiven, and Jesus' resurrection is proof that he could do it. He could drink the cup of wrath, pay for sin, and have life to give on the other side. There is not a single person who will, who will come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to be in with you. And Jesus will say, ah, oh man, I didn't quite do enough for you. It's finished. You are fully forgiven because of the resurrection. It is proof for you. Come on, good news for one person. I'll take that. It's for you today. What does that do for your experience in this life when it comes to struggles? Shame, guilt, fear before a holy God. If Jesus can beat death and swallow it up with life and have more life to give you, what is holding you back from barging into the presence of God? Like an adopted and loved son or daughter, you are fully forgiven because of the resurrected Savior. So, what place does shame have in your walk with God, or guilt have in your walk with God, or fear have? There's no room for it. You are forgiven. He, he took it all on himself. There is nothing left. When you look at the empty tomb, you have a full and complete assurance that you are forgiven in Christ. If you need anything else, look at the nail scars in his hands and feet that he's offering to show his disciples it's done, and I've got life for you too. Fully forgiven because of the resurrected Savior. Because Jesus has raised you, you are fully forgiven. That's one implication. Another implication is that you have a firm future. Paul uses this phrase that Jesus is the first fruits. That it was kind of like the first part of the crop to show how good or bad the rest of the crop would be. He's saying, if Jesus was raised to life, if he would have a renewed body, that is a proof of what your future looks like. That means death is not the end of the story. You can look at the one who crossed that river and came back to the other side to prove he knows the way, he will carry you through. You have a future hope that no matter what happens between now and then, he has you. Eternity is long, my friends. Life is short and Jesus knows the way to get you there. You have a firm future with him forever. That's not a hope or a fairy tale. That's not a fantasy we've conjured up. It is proven by the fact the tomb is empty and hundreds of people saw Jesus. You have a firm future with God forever. Again, if you're fully forgiven, then you know you have nothing to fear when you meet him face to face. You have a firm future. How does that affect the time between this moment and that moment when you see him face to face? How does that affect the the changes in your plan and your life path? How does that affect the suffering that comes along the way? It doesn't negate those things. It doesn't shove them off to the side, but it puts them in context, doesn't it? It puts them in context when you can see the horizon and know what's on the other side. No matter what the road brings between now and then, you have a firm future because Jesus was raised. I think the last implication is that you are free to endure. Because you are fully forgiven, because you have a firm future, you are free to endure whatever comes between now and then. Again, let me just read verse 58 one more time for you. We're called beloved brothers or brothers and sisters. You are loved and fully forgiven so you can be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding. Someone say abounding. Abounding is an incredible word. Think of it like overflowing or like like, like a, a young deer kind of skipping and move like going, like you are abounding in the work of the Lord. Not half-hearted, not complacent, You are abounding in the work of the Lord because you know it is not in vain. Because you know the future, you can endure today. Because you know the future, you know that everything you do for for Jesus' name is actually worth it. Even when you're not feeling it. Even when you are struggling. Even when you are suffering on this road. It's not in vain. You are free to endure you are free because you were already loved, already forgiven, already have a hope. You are free, unlike anyone else in the world, to endure because Jesus was raised. If you want to summarize what we're talking about here, I think this, this phrase kind of captures it. Future hope drives present faithfulness. Future hope drives present faithfulness. If you're not a Christian this morning, can I just be... Can I be a friend to you and tell you, all this incredible stuff we're talking about Jesus being raised, you, if you haven't trusted Jesus, you don't actually have a future hope. You don't. Not yet. If you haven't trusted Jesus, we've, we've got nothing else to offer you. Yeah, we got trampolines, that's cool, but man, at the end of the day, this is what it's all about. This is it. I love it if you love this community and want to be around, whatever, but this is the news we got to keep coming back to. This is what we stand on. This is what we hope in. What is stopping you from having this future hope? Again, just be honest with me today. If you have not trusted Jesus, why not? What's stopping you? What have you gained or earned by your best efforts? What, what have you borne in your life from trying so hard to please people or prove yourself or whatever? What good has it done you? It might sound arrogant or condescending for me to say Jesus is the way, but that, I'm just quoting Jesus to you. If he really did beat death and, and rise to life, then i got to quote him to you and tell you he is the way. He is the only one that can bring you through. Founders of every other religion have died. That's not unique to Jesus, right? He died, but more than that, he was raised to life. He is the one on the other side of death saying, I can bring you through. Why are you still trusting yourself? Your bank account, your body count, your Instagram followers, none of these things will last you past death. None of these things will, will satisfy a holy God. None of these things are worth your life, let alone your eternity. What are you waiting for? Trust Jesus today and have this future hope. It's yours. You can be fully forgiven today because of Jesus. He's good enough for you. Would you just meet with him today and do that? Accept him as Lord and Savior, the one to save you from your sins and the Lord of your life into forever. I'm Christian today. You've been nodding along, are like, yes, okay. I gotta remember, resurrection. Next time you ask, resurrection, okay, I got it. What would happen, though, in the drive of your life if this became your reality, if this became top of mind, if this was the thing that, that you sang to yourself, Jesus was raised. Maybe take a moment for self-reflection, like where has the drive of your faith been? Have you had a drive in your, or in your relationship with Jesus or has it been more of a, a coast? Or a or limp even? Like maybe the reason you don't preach the gospel to your neighbors is because you don't preach the gospel to yourself. Maybe the reason why you you actually are still struggling with guilt and doubt and shame and fear is because you haven't looked at the empty tomb in a while. You know your sin is a big deal, you know that you need a savior for sure, but you haven't actually looked at the fact that the cross is empty and the tomb is empty and the savior is risen and he is there with you. Again, hear me say this, I'm not minimizing for a second the incredible work of the cross, I'm just trying to finish the story with you, right? He is raised, it is finished, it is done, and and that affects you, not just someday today. Which of those three implications do you need to begin preaching to yourself day by day? Because he's raised, I'm fully forgiven. Because he's raised, I have a firm future, whatever today brings. Because he is raised, I am free to endure Imagine if you began saying that truth to yourself like every morning, taking one of those and just just pressing it into the struggles that you have in your life. Saying that to yourself over and over, rehearsing this truth because of what he has done, actually that changes everything. Imagine what would happen if we were a people of this kind of future hope, if we were borrowing tomorrow's joys for today's struggles. How would that change the way that we as a community suffer together? How would it change the way that we go about leaning into disciplining our walk with Jesus? How would that change the way that we we confront each other when we're struggling or we're caught in sin? This would not be a place of like weird spiritual pressure or or kind of performance and plastic people. This would be a place of overwhelming future hope bleeding into today. And friend, if you are in a season of suffering, If you're coming this morning because you've just been, you've been under a weight and you've been carrying it with, can I just remind you the Savior has risen for you today too. He's not minimizing the pain that you're in. He's not telling you to ignore your suffering and and just put up with it. He is with you. The fact that he went through the cross is proof that that he knows your suffering. Again, he didn't just stand distant, but he came close. And more than that, he beat it on the other side and he wants to take your hand and walk with you to that day. He wants to bring you safely home. This is the truth. We're being saved by day by day. His mercy is good enough just for today. His grace is new tomorrow. His mercy is good enough just for today. You have a future hope, even if today is dark. And Let that drive your faithfulness to him. Docs at church, the, the thing that comes to mind when we talk about the gospel, what comes top of mind will begin to shape and affect your reality, your experience with God. So let's together be a people that rehearse the hope of the fact that he is risen. Because he was raised, you were fully forgiven. You have a firm future and you are free to endure. Future hope drives our present faithfulness. Let's pray and worship him and celebrate that reality together today. Jesus, as we look at your resurrection, as we look at your finished work, would you give us the kind of joy that that only comes from you? Not a joy from from our circumstance or a joy from um, passing a theological pop quiz or whatever, but a joy that comes from the reality of meeting with you for who you are. You were raised. We're forgiven. We have a future and we're free to endure. We have a future hope. And so would you let that hope invade our reality today? Would you let us be a people of hope that are motivated for your mission because you were raised to life? Would you help us gather around each other as we struggle and suffer because we have a future hope? Would you make us a beacon of hope, firm and secure because you rose to life? Would you help us together celebrate, revel in, enjoy that reality together today and sing like people with that kind of We need you, Jesus. Meet us today. We pray in your name.